The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Jeremiah chapter 2. I have some handouts here. If I can get somebody's help, I just locked myself to the stage. Part of my goal today is to by the grace of God build a bridge between the old and the new. A bridge that Jeremiah lays out for us so beautifully. A little review of where we've come from. Last week we introduced the book while we also wrapped up our introduction to Old Testament prophecy. And chapter 2, verse 13, kind of gives a caption of the problem that Jeremiah is addressing as a covenant enforcer. Here's God speaking through his prophet, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Living water, ever-sustaining satisfaction being replaced by pleasures that perish. That's his audience. And as we look at this book, we get this, this overarching grasp of Israel's problem. Chapter 2, verse 19, you can just let your eye roll down the page just a little bit. There is no fear of God. Chapter 2, verse... Is it 19 as well? I was thinking it was 20. 220 we see that God is going to portray them as a, a faithless, that is, unfaithful bride. Long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said to me, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. The faithless bride of God. Going after other gods. 5.21 we read, Spiritual disability, that's what Israel's problem is. Oh foolish and senseless people who have eyes but don't see, ears but do not hear. They've become like the idols they worship. Right at the beginning of chapter 2, it said, verse 5, they went after worthlessness and became worthless. That's what happens to our souls when we go after things that don't satisfy. We get eaten up inside. We become as empty and as shallow as what we're pursuing, what we're placing our hope in, what we're seeking to find pleasure in. We become worthless just like the thing we're worshiping. Spiritual disability. Israel is stubborn and rebellious, we're told. Verse 23, this people has... A stubborn and rebellious heart, they've turned aside and gone away. In this context, they presume that God is for them when indeed He's not. They are living a lie. Chapter 7, 
4 through 11. Don't trust in deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. All is well. We have the presence of God right here. The temple is here. And all the while, Babylon's just on the other side of the hill. The day of the Lord is coming. Don't trust in deceptive words. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you don't oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, or shed the blood of the innocent in this place, if you do not go after false gods, then I will let you dwell in this place. But know this, if you don't see your hearts transformed, if you continue to persist in your coldness, allowing bitterness to fester, allowing fear of man to be higher than the fear of God, to allow yourself to go after things that don't satisfy, then know this, you're trusting in deceptive words to no avail, and the day of the Lord will come upon you. No knowledge of God's law. Chapter 8, verse 7. My people do not know the rules of the Lord. Or chapter 9, verse 3. They proceed from evil to evil. They don't know me. So here's a people that has God on their lips. They were born into the right families. Yahweh, they, their family history has a past with the Lord. And yet here they are, growing up, thinking all is well, as if they're going to be able to walk into heaven holding on to their parents' hands. And the testimony is, no. It's a single file line. And if your heart is far from God, if you've turned your back from Him, if you allow ugliness and sin to raise, you have no hope, no future with God. So Jeremiah says, A wolf from the desert shall devastate them because their transgressions are many. Their apostasies are great. Can the leopard change his spots? You tell me. Can it happen? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to do evil. I will scatter you like chaff driven by the wind from the desert because you have forgotten me and trusted lies. Now that issue of trusted lies, all sin is a sin of unbelief. Sin is making promises to us. Look at this. Spend your time here. Direct your money this way. Nobody will know if you do it in this manner. It's making lies to us. And all the while, the God who sees all things is looking down upon our hearts, and we can't hide from Him. Trusting in deceptive lies. Forgetting who God is. So, Israel had two problems. They had forsaken the source of life and they had pursued that which could not ultimately satisfy. And so God, in His grace, rather than just bringing the day of the Lord in, wiping out the sinner, He gives the sinner, the rebel, a gracious word. Come back. Come back. And that's, So He sends in a prophet, this time named Jeremiah, and He says, come back. And so we looked at how the prophets were covenant ambassadors. They were sent as preachers to call Israel back. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 11 now. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Jeremiah 11, 
Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Hear the words of the covenant and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant, namely the one that he had made with the fathers who he brought out of Egypt. So this is about the Mosaic covenant. Not only did we read the history of the Mosaic Covenant, a history of rebellion in Joshua through Kings, now we're reading the prophets of the Mosaic Covenant. Those who simply have Moses open, and they're the voice of God to a new generation. Jeremiah is one of them. Now jump down, if you will, to verse 9. A conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They've turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They've gone after other gods and served them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods of whom they make offerings. They'll look everywhere to find their satisfaction, to find their hope, and it will be empty. For they cannot save them in the time of trouble, for your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to shame, altars to make offerings to Baal. So the first thing I wanted us to see about the function of the prophets is that they're preachers. And principally their message is not about the future, but about the present. They are foretellers, but principally they're forth tellers. They're preaching, just like I often do up here. Calling us back. Calling us to embrace humility and to cling to the cross rather than spurning the cross by hiding behind pride. But then there's a second element that's often missed when we think about the prophets, and that is that the prophets were prayers. Not only preachers, but prayers. And we see it in the very next verse. The prophets as prayers. So look with me at verse 14. God expects something and commands Jeremiah to go against his purpose. Therefore, do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or a prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of trouble. I will not listen to them, so don't pray. What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exult? Can you rejoice? Yahweh once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit, but with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it and its branches will be consumed. Yahweh of hosts, who planted you, has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that this house, the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger. Don't pray, Jeremiah. Now what I want us to see here is that Jeremiah had a responsibility. And... There's a number of times in the Bible where God calls his prophets not to pray. And I want to propose that when God calls them not to pray, this is a weird... I, I say this... I, see if you can hear me. I think God wants them to disobey. 
It's one of the few times in Scripture where God is expecting them to go, expecting someone not to listen to him. Remember Moses at Mount Sinai? God, I'm pleading for them. Don't pray. Get away from me, Moses. And that commandment was the very means of God to bring about the intercession that resulted in mercy. What was Jeremiah's response? Look at chapter 14, 7 through 9. Though our iniquities testify against us, act, O Yahweh, for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We've sinned against you. Oh, your ho- oh, you hope of Israel, its Savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man confused, like a mighty warrior who cannot save? Yes, you, O Yahweh, are in the midst of us, and we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Don't pray. Okay, I will. Feel the weightiness of the judgment of God. I won't even listen to Israel. But God, You're the only hope. You're the only hope that we have. Please. 17, verse 13. O Yahweh, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken Yahweh, the fountain of living water. O Yahweh, the hope of Israel. That's it. That's Jeremiah's view. Don't pray. And it's the very means that sparks him to action. Look at chapter 18, verse 20. He's preaching, nobody's listening, and so then he comes to God. Should good be repaid with evil, yet they have dug a pit for my life. They're not listening to him. Instead, they're literally knocking out his teeth and throwing him into a cistern. And then he says, verse 20, Remember how I stood before you to speak good for them, to turn away your wrath from them. That's what he was. He was a a prayer. So not only are prophets given by God to mediate His Word to the people, prophets are raised up to mediate on behalf of the people to God. They go both ways. That's the role of a prophet. He's a preacher and he's a prayer. Let's look and see how it works in the rest of the Bible. Abraham, he's called a prophet. He was closely, and his prophetic role was closely tied to his praying for sinners to enjoy divine pardon. Remember when he had passed off his wife as his sister to Abimelech? Abimelech grieved in his soul. What if I had slept with her? I would have sinned and would have been um, guilty of deep judgment. Here's a pagan who has that view, that high view of sexuality. If I would have slept with her, I would have incurred the judgment of God. And the statement is, let Abraham pray for you that God's wrath might be turned away. And he's called a prophet in that context. Samuel said he would sin against God if he failed not only to give them the Word of God, but to pray on their behalf. God told Ezekiel that sin had caused a breach big gap between God 
and Israel. Israel's sin had made them not God's friend, but His enemy. And wrath was on its way. And so, in the book of Ezekiel, we learn that God is looking for someone. Looking for someone who would... Here's Israel over here, a big gap, no relationship with God, and what's coming at Israel is a giant fireball. Someone who would stand in front of Israel representing the nation and push back the wrath of God. Ezekiel 22-30 Build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it. That's what he's looking for. And yet what we're told is he could find no one to stand in the gap. And because of that, Babylon came and overcame Jerusalem. With this type of imagery, the psalmist says, so so look at how that's worded, build up a wall, stand in the breach. The fire's coming, lay a wall up in order to protect the city from being overcome by the just judgment of God. Stand in the breach. That's what an intercessor does. Pleading for more grace, more mercy, more kindness. They don't deserve it, but bring it, God, please. Give a little bit more time before your just wrath is poured down upon this people. That's what Abraham did with Sodom and Gomorrah. God, would you hold off if there were a hundred people? How about fifty people? He's interceding on behalf of Sodom. So this is what the psalmist says of Moses at the golden calf episode. What did Moses do? God says, get away from me, Moses. I'm going to let my judgment fall on Israel, and then I'm going to start over with you. A brand new nation. And Moses pleads with God. What would all the nations say? What would Egypt say? You brought them out with great power, but you didn't have enough to get them into the land that you promised them? God, don't you recognize your reputation is at stake with respect to your heritage? I plead with you, God. Show mercy to this people. And so the psalmist says, Moses stood in the breach. Same language as Ezekiel. He stood in the breach before the Lord to turn away His wrath from destroying them. Prophets were, pray, were preachers, and prophets were prayers. And what's intriguing to me is that's exactly the makeup, the job description of an apostle. You'll remember in Acts chapter 6, there was a rising need in the community of the church. People's Physical needs were not being met. And so they came to the apostles and said, what are you going to do about it? And Peter wisely, prayerfully said, we have a certain responsibility. Let me read the text. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The people find them, the the apostles appoint them. 
But we will devote ourselves to two things, to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So what's this group of, of uh, I was going to say seven, what did it say? Seven men. The first one of whom is Stephen. What were they called? That, that small group, I heard it. Deacons. So you've got in the earliest church, the deacons and the apostles side by side. Just two groups, two offices. And then the apostles, there's only 12 of them, right alongside the deacons. Churches begin to be planted. The apostles don't plant apostles. What do they appoint in every church along with the deacons? Elders. And so our elders have spoken of their responsibilities to be men of the word and men of prayer. Pastor John didn't just learn how to pray like he prayed this morning overnight. We had modeled for us a man of prayer. His prayer went on for seven, ten minutes. I have no idea. And it just flowed from his soul. He was thinking of it. He, he was preparing, how would you have me pray? I know that because I was party to some of the dialogue of preparation. But he got up there and he prayed. And we were able to link arms with him. And then Jason was able to come and open up the word for us. And what we see is an apostolic extension. The apostles are what I consider to be end-time prophets. They give us the rest of the Bible. Then the Bible becomes closed. So you have the Old Testament prophets and you have the end-times prophets called the apostles. The Bible becomes closed, but then the ministry of the prophetic ministry does get passed on, not in creating new Bible, but speaking as if speaking the very oracles of God. And it's bound up in the role of the elder who has that kind of God-given authority and yet ever accountable to the Word. Ever accountable. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20. Don't go to the necromancers who chirp and mutter to the Word and to the testimony. And if their Word is not in accordance with that Word, do not listen to them. To them they have no dawn. Isaiah 8.20. The prophetic word was always and continues to be ever accountable to the word. The difference is that whereas Paul's word was accountable to Moses and our word is accountable to Paul, no one else's word is accountable to mine. We have a closed Bible. But the prophetic ministry still continues. And it's not just a ministry to the Word. And we at BCS, Bethlehem College and Seminary, here we are. We're supposed to be raising up elders. It's an elder apprenticeship program. And what we've realized, even in the last few years, is we've, we've been thinking about creating a model for seminary that is Word-based. And only recently have we been considering how do we model and develop the other side of the Double responsibility of the elder. Not only being men of the word, but being men of prayer. 
So last year we had, um, there were a student-led weekly gatherings of corporate prayer. And then this year it's been faculty-led. Trying to help nurture a community that is not only word-grounded, but radically dependent. The level to which prayer is important is the level to which God is glorified and the level to which we see our need most. Low view of prayer, low view of God's glory, low view of neediness, high view of pride. Pray for our leaders. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, also called elders, also called pastors or shepherds, and the deacons. Yahweh once called you a green olive, beautiful with good fruit, but with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it and its branches will be consumed. Where we're moving today, now, is a big overview, a broad overview of Jeremiah's view of the new covenant. And what we're going to see is what Paul anticipates using this exact image of the olive tree. An olive tree that all of a sudden is not producing the way it should be. And so the vine dresser comes in and he begins to break off olive branches and they're thrown into the fire. And amazingly, he finds an ol- a wild olive and he takes the branches and he actually grafts them into the green olive, the original olive, the cultivated olive. He grafts them in. Gentiles being all of a sudden grafted into an original Jewish tree and original Jewish branches that are thrown aside. And then the testimony of Romans 11 is Gentiles do not become proud This one people of God that the Lord is shaping, made up of a Jewish root. And now, wild branches, God can just as easily break you off. And know this, He will ultimately graft in many of the other original native cultivated olives. To the Jew first, and then to the Greek. Jeremiah's vision of the new covenant. So turn with me, please, to... Jeremiah chapter 3. We're going to walk through a number of the oracles of judgment and through the narratives of Judah's unbelief en route to the oracles of Israel's salvation and promise of a new covenant. What we're going to see, though, is that in all the judgment stuff that we've been looking at up to this point in Jeremiah... What we've done is we've hopped over a number of New Covenant anticipations. And we're going to go to the first of these New Covenant anticipations. And it's amazing and beautiful and quite exciting. I didn't see this one until this last year. And when I saw it, it... It fired me up. In fact, it inspired me to write an entire article on the Christian's relationship to the Ten Commandments. 
So let's consider this text. Jeremiah chapter 3. As I go here, I'm going to ask you to pray with me one more time. Lord, open up your word to us. Time is ticking. You are worth proclaiming. Open up this one text today. In Christ I pray. Amen. The new covenant. A new temple, a new people, and the fulfillment of the promises God made Abraham. Look with me at, in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 12. Go and proclaim these words to the north and say, Return, faithless Israel. Verse 14. Return, O faithless children, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. Now, here he's addressing the north. And in using that language, he's distinguishing the north and the south. Israel in the north was exiled in 723. Judah in the south, exiled in 586. He says, Israel in the north, you're not done. Ten tribes... Don't look for them in America. I'm calling you back. I'm calling you back, and there's going to be a reunification. Look with me at verse 18. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel. Reunification. One people of God. They together, and together they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. New Covenant image is is a declaration of restoration. Throughout the prophets, there are two parts of restoration. Number one is restoration to a land. Jeremiah says it will happen in 70 years. But that's only half of restoration. The other half is reconciliation with God. One is physical and one is spiritual. And the new covenant is the climax of both realities. So we see that there's going to be a reunification of God's people. That's what's anticipated. A a real Israel and a real Judah now are going to come back together and become one people in this age of new covenant. But that's not all that it says. Along with the reunification we read about the inclusion of the nations. In fact, these nations are going to come back to Jerusalem, the very place that we read in verse 14 under a different word. Zion, Jerusalem. Look with me at 3.17. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all the nations, Gentiles, shall gather to it. So now we've got Israel and Judah back in Jerusalem, reunified. And now you've got nations streaming to Jerusalem. Gentiles. The very place where the Jewish people are restored, now there's Gentiles that are going to be right in their midst. And they're not evil anymore. Notice these nations. Nations shall gather it to the present gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own heart. 
So no more stubbornness in these nations. These are a transformed Gentile people that are living in the same context as the restored Jews. Now, this imagery of heartness, stubborn is how it calls the Gentiles, no longer stubborn is what they'll be like when they arrive in Jerusalem. They were stubborn, their heart was, had that stubbornness, now it's gone. They had an evil heart, and it appears as though it's been transformed. Look with me over at chapter 5, verse 23. This is how Israel, before restoration is, this people has a stubborn and a rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. Their hearts are hard, calloused. That's Israel. Or chapter 17, verse 1, very telling in light of this book that's about the law being written on the heart. Chapter 17, verse 1, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart. What's engraved on the tablet of Judah's heart? Sin. Not the law. Sin. That's what's there. But now what we're reading is of a people that will gather to Jerusalem and no longer follow their stubborn inclinations of their evil heart. What's happened? What's going on in this transformation? Now look with me at verse 16. Chapter 3, 16. So I will take you, beginning at the verse 14, I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I'll bring you to Zion. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. Same word for pastor in Ephesians 4.11. And when you've multiplied and increased in the land, Israel, in those days they shall no more say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall, co- it shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. No more Ark of the Covenant. And I'm wondering, what's he mentioning that for? No more Ark. Here's a replica of the Ark of the Covenant. Outside of the Ark would be placed the book of Deuteronomy. But there's only one part of the Bible that's inside the Ark. What is it? The Ten Commandments. Israel had no idols in the center of their sanctuary. At the very place where you would have expected an image of the gods, Israel had no image. What they had was an Ark of the Covenant. And the presence of God would hover over that Ark, but buried inside the Ark was the manifestation of the very character of God that was to be imaged or embodied in the lives of man. The Ten Commandments. The Ark of the Covenant was the throne of God. His presence would rest upon it, and His Spirit would come down, resting upon the manifestation of His character, the very thing that Israel, outside of the temple, was supposed to see in their hearts. But they don't have it written on their hearts. What's inscribed on their hearts is sin. The law, a good law, that manifests the character of God is outside of the people, not inside the people. It's merely a letter 
written on tablets of stone that has not gone into listening ears. Remember, they are spiritually disabled. They have ears, but they don't hear. They don't know the Lord. They don't know the law. It's not in them. Instead, what's in them is sin. Rampant sin. But what this text says is that the day is coming when the ark of the Lord will no longer be seen or remembered or longed for, and instead the throne of God will have transferred. It will have transferred from the ark to all of Jerusalem. Do you see that? Look at Verse 17, the ark of the Lord not remembered, at that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. There's a transfer happening, but Jerusalem is the very place where the people of God have gathered. Look at the process here. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. But what's being envisioned is new covenant. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their heart. The people of God are gathered to Jerusalem, and now the very place where the people of God are is the throne of God. No longer is God thrown outside of people with the ark, with the law on the tablets of stone. Rather, something's happened. The ark has been transferred in the new covenant. We have become the ark of the covenant where the law is now inscribed on our hearts and God is reigning over us by the presence of His Spirit working through us and imaging Himself to the world. Because the old covenant was given to a people a good law, holy, righteous, and good, says Paul in Romans 7.12. A good law, but it stayed outside of them. It was graciously given. Grace upon grace, for the law came through Moses. Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. The grace and truth from Jesus is a grace that was built upon grace. That is, upon the law of Moses. It's a gracious law, but it was principally external, not internal. And because of that, Paul could call it The Old Covenant, the essence of which is the Ten Commandments, a ministry of condemnation. Look at the New Covenant now. Here's Paul, a minister of the New Covenant, using the exact same language right out of Jeremiah 31. And then he's going to use the imagery of the Ark of the Covenant and the tablets that are now written on the human heart. This is the life you and I are supposed to be living embodying the character of God in our very lives. God doesn't have an image in the center of a temple. We are the image, and the world is to see the temple on the move. God putting Himself on display through us. And you show, Corinthians, that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. God has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, that is, not external, but of the Spirit working inside of us, creating what was not possible before. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And what's so amazing is that 
Jeremiah and Paul, speaking to a predominantly Gentile church, just like Bethlehem is, predominantly Gentile, is envisioning a day when one people will be brought together, a people of reconciled, reunified Jews, with a whole bunch of Gentiles hopping into the mix, all under one umbrella of the presence of God, the throne of God, the reign of God, the kingdom of God is among us. He's reigning in us, over us. It's the new covenant. That the new covenant in Jeremiah's vision is not just with Jew and Gentile, but that there's others who have been brought in, and all of us are no longer following the stubbornness of our hearts because something's happened. Now let's see how it works with respect to the global picture taking us all the way back to Genesis. Just turn the page and go to, Genesis, to Jeremiah 4, verses 1 and 2. If you return, O Israel, remember the vision is that they've returned. If you return, to me you should return. If you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as Yahweh lives in truth and in justice and in righteousness, then what's going to happen? The fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The nations shall bless themselves in Him, in God, and in Him they shall glory. All of a sudden, the promises that through you, Abraham, the world would be blessed, it's going to happen, linked up here with the new covenant, and a returned people called Israel. Now we're going to have to see how Jeremiah unpacks this. Because predominantly what happens in the early church is that the Gentiles come and the Jews reject. Predominantly. But everything starts with a Jew. Jesus, the son of David, the ultimate representative of Israel. And then he sets around him how many guys? How many? Twelve? I believe reconstituting Israel. Twelve tribes, twelve apostles, and then calls them, take my glory, manifest by the Spirit that will bring me great glory. The Spirit of God will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. All of a sudden, what's happening is the, is the Ark of the Covenant at the center of God's temple begins to expand, and the Garden of Eden begins to find its ultimate culmination point. Remember, Adam was called, fill the earth, multiply, and subdue it as my image bearer. You're in the garden, now image me, and take my image to the ends of the earth. And Adam didn't do it. Israel was called as the son of God. Israel is my firstborn son. They were called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation so that all the nations would gather to them. It didn't happen. And now Israel comes, Jesus comes, and reconstitutes around himself. He is the last Adam, the ultimate human, the true Israelite. Gathers around himself a reconstituted people of God. And finally, the kingdom of God begins to expand and go global. A spiritual kingdom, for now, that will finally, ultimately overcome and become a new heavens and a new earth in due time. And the call for us is to look inside of our soul and say, God, am I displaying you like I should be? Where are areas where the law hasn't been engraved? Please put them there. 
a law of love, a law that will bring Jesus much glory as the ultimate king. And this book's going to focus on Jesus as well. It's going to bring Jesus right into the New Covenant context. And we'll look at that next week, Lord willing. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your book. Walk in our midst and help us, even as we struggle with hearts that don't want to be humble and dependent. Reign in us. Overcome our resistance, just as you promised you would in the New Covenant through Jeremiah. Work in us, Lord, what is pleasing to you. Work out of us stubbornness and evil. Display your greatness in our midst. In Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.